John Osep, we're reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through, through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Thanks, Sue. Please keep your Bibles open and let's, uh, let's pray again. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would give us ears to hear, you give us minds to understand and you give us hearts that, that rest and rejoice in you and your grace to us in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Rules, rules, rules. Rules have, uh, I would say, taken on a new importance and level of significance over these past couple of years. Uh, What are the rules? Follow the rules. Rules have been very much part of kind of the consciousness of our lives. It's good to hear that uh, of the coming easing of of the rules um, around uh, mandated face masks from next week. Uh, But a lot of time and effort has been spent over these last couple of years, in knowing the rules and in keeping the rules, I'd have to say with varying levels of compliance, uh, um, at times I've, I've found the, uh, it a challenge to not uh, kind of be, become a Pharisee myself, uh, 
so to not lose sight of the uh, perhaps whatever good intention that sits at the heart of the rule and the spirit of the rule, if you like, and uh, and just focus on the letter of the rule, sometimes with a view to actually not um, to not act in keeping with the spirit of the rule while still abiding by the the letter of it. It's been a strange old couple of years. But it strikes me that this heightened focus on rules and keeping the rules actually, and of course the, the variety of responses to the rules from obsessive compliance through to complete rebellion and kind of everything in between, it strikes me that it kind of mirrors and illustrates what I think is the most common misunderstanding of the Christian faith and of people's response to the Christian faith. Uh, many people think and perhaps it's, it's informed by institutions and so-called churches that have taught them a, a false gospel, many people think that what matters most for the Christian faith is keeping the rules. Do these things, do these good things, go to church, say certain prayers, give money, do other good things, do these things and don't do these things. Don't swear, don't smoke, don't watch certain things on screens, don't have sex before you're married. Don't do these things, don't do these things. Keep the rules and if you keep the rules or, or keep enough of them to kind of get some sort of pass grade on whatever scale that we sort of think of, then well, well, God will let you into heaven when you die. Tragically, tragically, that is a common misunderstanding of Christianity which people either accept and try to miserably pursue, and if they're honest, to, to fail, or they reject that because, well, they don't, they don't want to keep the rules. And, you know, I don't think this is just sort of out there in the minds of people who, who don't really know any better. I think it often comes close to home for us because, because of the nature of... Um, of human sinfulness, because of our, our tendency to put ourselves and our actions and our performance at the centre of our lives, at the centre of our thinking, it, it, is, it is easy for us to, to drift into a kind of rules-based approach to the Christian life and to, in, a, in effect, behave like, well, that's what matters most. In this morning's passage, we encounter people who, well, who operated that way which landed them in, in a complete opposition to Jesus. And Jesus challenged them. And through these words, Jesus challenges us and he shows us, he shows us the wonderful and liberating truth of the gospel that he came to bring. Keeping rules, trying to keep rules, failing to keep rules is an oppressive burden. And Jesus shows us a very different way. So look with me, Matthew chapter 12. Our section begins with the words at that time, like the, the previous section back in chapter 11, verse 25, which began in the same way, at that time. And I think what Matthew is doing here is he's, he's collecting various incidents that happened at that time and he's arranging them, putting them together to communicate and build this picture of who Jesus is. The action here takes place in some grain fields on the Sabbath. And it's important to understand a bit about uh, what the Sabbath is. The, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week uh, for Israelite, Israelites. It was to be a day of rest. The word Sabbath simply means rest. Uh, the Old Testament law of Moses required that people observe the Sabbath, that they rested on this rest day. 
Uh, so, for example, we read in uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 21, Exodus 34, 21, six days you shall labour, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during ploughing season and harvest, you must rest. So even when there's ploughing to be done and harvesting to be done, God says take a rest day every seven. Uh, now, put this another way, as a simple rule, do not harvest on the Sabbath. With that background in mind, we read 12 verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So here's the, the source of the conflict. The Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples of being lawbreakers. Now, it may seem a bit of a stretch to say that they're, they're harvesting on the Sabbath when they're just feeding themselves with a few heads of grain because they're hungry. But more likely the Pharisees here are referring not to Exodus 34 but to perhaps to their own rules and laws which they had, had uh, built around the law of Moses to define and to nail down all sorts of different types of work that you, that you couldn't do that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And so they're probably referring to those rules, those laws and accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking, of being unlawful. But notice Jesus' response. He doesn't uh, enter into debate about whether or not what they're doing constitutes harvesting or not. No, instead he goes on the attack. He questions their whole understanding of the law and, the, and their whole response to God. Twice he questions them, haven't you read? Verse 3 and verse 5, haven't you read? I mean, these people who, who prided themselves on their knowledge, who saw themselves as, as teachers of others, he questions their understanding. Firstly, verse 3, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Now, there's a bit of um, Old Testament background, which is helpful to understand. In the house of God, the, the, the tabernacle and then the temple, the, uh, the cons there was consecrated bread, this bread that was, uh, was placed, these 12 loaves of bread that was placed on the, the gold table uh, before, before the Lord. You can read about it in uh, Leviticus 24, 1 to 9. You might remember from our Leviticus series, uh, was that last year? Sometime recently. Uh, this bread was the bread of the presence before the Lord, and it belonged to Aaron and his sons. That is, it belonged to the priests. But many years after God gave them this, uh, this instruction, we read in 1 Samuel 21 that uh, David was fleeing from King Saul. And uh, he went to Ahimelech, the priest, and, well, after lying about why he was there, he uh, asked if he had some bread, and Ahimelech, well, gave him some of the consecrated bread because, well, that was, that was all he had. Now, First reading, you might think this is a bit of a strange defence for Jesus to make. I mean, what's he saying? Is he saying, well, David did a dodgy thing, so it's okay if my disciples do a dodgy thing. I don't think that's what it is. And I think if we, if we read on, we'll see what, what he does mean. Because the second haven't you read comes in verse 5. Haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? What does he mean here? The priests desecrate the Sabbath. 
Well, in short, he's, he's saying the priests work on the Sabbath. They, they go about their work offering sacrifices and replacing the bread of the presence every Sabbath. They work on the Sabbath. They desecrate the Sabbath by their non-resting, and yet they are innocent. What Jesus is saying here is don't lose sight of what's more important. Sustaining the life of the future King David along with his hungry companions, that was more important than upholding a ceremonial law about who the bread belonged to. Enabling the temple to operate as the, the meeting place between God and his people, that was more important than fulfilling the Pharisees' rules about Sabbath keeping. In short, I think Jesus is saying, David is greater than bread rules and the temple is greater than Sabbath rules. But then notice Jesus ups the ante and he goes on the attack. He says, verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. That's a pretty provocative statement to make. I mean, the temple was pretty great. It provided the way for God to dwell with his people. It was, it was the place for his people to meet with him. And Jesus declares something greater than the temple is here. That is, he is the new temple, the new greater temple. He is the one through whom God dwells with us. He's the one who provides the way for us to meet with God. He's the something greater than the temple. He is the someone greater than the temple. For he is, verse 8, the son of the man who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Which doesn't just mean that, well, Jesus is in, you know, he's the boss and he can trump the Sabbath rules about what you can and can't do. He's saying more than that. He's saying that he is the one in charge of God's great Sabbath rest. That's a way of speaking of heaven, of God's coming kingdom, the place of rest and blessing, and Jesus is the Lord of it. We saw last week in the end of chapter 11, he's the one who invites us, all who are spiritually weary and burdened, to come to him, and he will give us rest, rest for our souls as we take his yoke upon us, as we're tight with Jesus. He's gentle, he's humble in heart, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Jesus is the Lord of God's rest. But the Pharisees didn't get it. Their, their hearts were cold. As Jesus said in verse 7, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus here is quoting from Hosea uh, chapter 6, verse 6, and it's actually the second time that Jesus quotes these, this verse at the Pharisees. Uh, he says it earlier in chapter 9, verse 13. He's saying that, that God wants us to have hearts that are merciful, that acknowledge him. He's not interested in any kind of cold-hearted religious rituals that we may perform. And maybe there's a, there's a challenge and a, and a gentle encouragement there for us that Jesus calls us to come to him, to rest in his gentle and humble heart, to follow him, to seek to imitate his gentle and humble heart. He doesn't call us to a cold list of do's and don'ts. Well, round one, 
but the Pharisees certainly goes to Jesus. But the Pharisees come back for a second attempt, verse 9. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Notice there that they've already made up their minds about Jesus. They, they want to condemn him. And they're just looking for the, the evidence to support that. And they try to use this, this poor man with a shriveled hand to, to get what they want. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, I gather it's a question that, that cropped up um, often, a number of times it's, it's presented throughout the Gospels. And I guess the logic is that if you're a doctor, if your work is, is making people better, well then, like everyone else, you should take a break from your work. You should rest on the Sabbath. As Jesus said in the parallel accounts in Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's meant, the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing. It's meant to be a good gift to bring us restoration and rest. It's not a burdensome system for us to, to kind of serve and uphold. So, yeah, technically, it's a good idea for healers not to heal on the Sabbath. But what a twisted and heartless setup that this is. I mean, this is completely devoid of any of the mercy that God seeks from people. And Jesus sees straight through it. Again, he, he answers them with a question. He says, verse 11, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Of course, the answer is yes, of course they'll do. I mean, if my sheep falls into the pit, I'm going to pull it out. I'm not going to walk along and go, oh, no, my sheep's in the in the pit, oh well, hang on, it's the Sabbath, oh well, I better leave it there to suffer and possibly die. It's ridiculous. Of course the answer is yes, you'll save the sheep. And Jesus says, well, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a, is a day of, of blessing, of life, of, of restoration, the Pharisees had lost touch with the heart of God's law. And so Jesus brought blessing and life and restoration to this poor man, verse 13. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. An impossible command for someone with a shriveled hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. The Son of Man... He's Lord of the Sabbath. He, he brings blessing and life and restoration. And the Pharisees, oh, they praised God and they said, we've never seen anything like it. Who is this man who brings life? Uh, no, no, they didn't do that, did they? Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. What a contrast. Is it lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus answers, he does good. He preserves life. He brings blessing. He brings restoration on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, they plot to kill on the Sabbath. It, it, it's a good illustration of how the, the path of human-centred self-righteousness is destructive. 
in whatever form it takes, whether it's the, the seemingly upright, moral, self-righteous, religious person or the, the self-made, successful, I did it my way, non-religious person. Either way, if you reject the author of life, if you reject the, the Lord of life, your path inevitably will end up in self-serving, antisocial, destructive ways. God has revealed himself to us. God has come to us as the man Jesus. And, and we meet him as we, in the pages of the Bible as we read God's word. The great tragedy is that many people, many people are like the Pharisees were, they're blind to who Jesus is. And yet to those who have ears to hear, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest, rest for your souls. He says here, I am the new temple, the way to forgiveness, the way to life and relationship with God. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the way to eternal life and blessing. Brothers and sisters, do you see how, how big and glorious Jesus is? Don't settle on a, on a me-centred self-righteousness. Come to Jesus, lean on him. Follow him. Because he is God's chosen servant who brings justice and hope to the world, which is what the, the, uh, the last part of our passage shows us. We read there in verse 15, uh, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. Jesus is aware of the, the Pharisees' murderous intentions. He, he withdraws. It, it wasn't time for him for his death yet. And yet many people still followed him and he healed, it says, all who were ill. Now, healing people uh, wasn't, healing them physically wasn't why Jesus came. But it, it's almost as if he couldn't help but heal them. So, so great was his compassion that everywhere he went, he he healed people, he brought life, he brought blessing, he brought restitution, he overturned the effects of sin and death in this world. And he did it as a sign of, of the power, that the power of sin and death was soon going to be overturned by his death and resurrection. It was a sign of the, of the kingdom to come. He healed all who were ill. But then notice strangely, verse 16, he warned them not to tell others about him. Now, why did he do that? Well, water's down there, that's all right. Um, why did he tell people not to, not to tell others about him? Uh, was it that he didn't want his uh, primary reputation, thanks, Julia, his primary reputation to be that of a healer, perhaps? Uh, was it that he was trying to just lay low and keep out of the, the reaches of the Pharisees for now? Perhaps. Uh, was it that he, he didn't want to be overtaken by the demands of, of growing crowds? Perhaps. Perhaps it was in part you know, all of those things. But the reason given by Matthew is in the next verse, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one in who I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. 
Matthew's saying Jesus is the one that Isaiah prophesied about 400 years earlier. This chosen, spirit-empowered servant of the Lord who will suffer like a bruised reed or a smouldering wick. That is, he wouldn't come as an an all-conquering, powerful king, a military ruler. Rather, he would come as a suffering servant. And by suffering to the point of death on a cross, he would proclaim justice, forgiveness, reconciliation. He would bring hope, hope not just to, to Israel, but to the nations, to the world. That is, if we know our, our Old Testament prophecy of, of Isaiah, then, then Matthew is very clear in telling us who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's God's chosen servant who brings justice and hope to the world. So the take home for us today, I've got seven things for you to do and five for you not to do. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. And if you're reaching for your pen there to ready to scribble them down, well, you've fallen for my, my fairly obvious trap. Our response to Jesus is not to, to get busy doing all the things and not doing those things. Now, undoubtedly, there are, there are always good works that God prepares for us to do. Good things he calls us to walk in, Ephesians 2 verse 10. And, and we are to, to work out our salvation, that is to, to, to work outwards from our salvation as, uh, with fear and trembling as Philippians 2 verse 12 says. Remembering, of course, that it's God who works in us uh, to will and to act according to, to his good purpose. And we are like, uh, like Paul to press on, to strain towards what is ahead as Philippians 3 verse 12 and 13 says. That is, we, we are to be active disciples of Jesus, doing good and avoiding evil. But we must always guard our hearts from drifting into cold activism. And I'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone. See, our sinful nature can, can incline us to Pharisee-like self-justification, you know, seeking validation that... Uh, that we're all good because of who we are and what we've done and, and so we get busy doing all the things. Or maybe, on the other hand, our sinful nature inclines us to the, well, the close cousin of self-justification, which is self-condemnation, deciding that we're hopeless and because of what we've done and so, well, we better either dig deep and try, to, try harder to pull up our socks or, or maybe just give up and don't bother. Brothers and sisters, I want to say we must guard our hearts against drifting into a cold activism. And the way to do that, the way to guard our hearts is simply to look to Jesus because he is spectacularly glorious and wonderfully liberating. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And the temple was pretty great. It's the dwelling place of the one and only God with his people. Jesus is the even greater temple. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the King of God's rest. He brings life, he brings blessing, he brings restoration for eternity. 
Jesus is a spirit-empowered, chosen servant of God who brings justice and hope, who brings forgiveness, who brings life to all who come to him. So look to Jesus and keep looking to Jesus. If you really want something to to do this week, read over these verses in, in this part of God's word. Read over this section from Matthew 11 to 13. Read the whole gospel if you, if you like. And reflect on who Jesus is, what he came to do and, and what he calls us to as those who trust him and follow him. That would be a great way to, to guard our hearts and to encourage our hearts. And as a step in that direction, how about we come before God and pray. Let's pray. Our loving God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for for not leaving us in the dark, but sending your Son into this world, the Lord Jesus, the one in whom and through whom we can know you, we can relate to you. We praise you for Jesus, the Lord of your great Sabbath rest. Father, through the the ups and the downs of life, through our joys and our sorrows, please guard our hearts from self-justification and self-condemnation. Please lift our eyes to see Jesus, to come to him, to rest in him, to trust him, to follow him. Father, may we, may we more and more see how spectacularly glorious and wonderfully liberating he is. And may we live lives singularly devoted to him. And we ask in his name. Amen. What are we doing now? Are we singing?